And welcome to the Beervana Podcast. Here we are again, Jeff. Here we are again. In Down the, in the basement of the studios of X-Ray FM. That's right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Neither so, of us had any idea where to go from there. Yeah. All right. All right. So uh, I'm Patrick Emerson. I'm a professor at Oregon State University. You are Jeff Allworth. You are beer writer extraordinaire. Uh, Most recently of the Widmer Way, Go Buy It, that's, uh, Uligan Press. That's right. And uh, I've written other stuff, which you should also buy. Beer Bible, Secrets of Master Brewers. Yep. Uh, which is going to come up today, by the way. That's true. Yeah. Organically, not even, uh, not even seeded. So today, as you might already guess, uh, we had in this studio, where we pre-recorded, uh, the founder and brewer of Upright Brewing, Alex Gnum. Alex is one of the most talented young brewers in the United States, and Upright is regularly cited as one of the best Portland and Oregon breweries. The brewery focuses on old-world craftsmanship, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> with a special emphasis on mixed fermentation barrel-aged beers, and has, has one. Oh man, okay, Sorry, I'm already and, off script here. No, you should, and, and, you should put that and in there. Okay, and yeah. has one, <laughs> and has one. Okay, that's your fault. Good. Yes, that's my and fault. And has one upright acclaim around beer vana. Uh, the brewery has just celebrated its tenth anniversary. We thought it would be a great time to bring Alex in. Uh, so we actually pre-recorded the interview. Uh, your book comes up. That's right, and we we drank a fair amount of beer, so we're trying to keep it together here. <laughs> yeah, so this explains uh, everything. Yes. Uh, including the, fast that we, the fact that we have to be a little bit faster because uh, in an interview with Alex was so interesting that it kind of um, uh, took over most of the time we have for the pod. That's right. And you'll appreciate us shutting up and letting Alex do the talking. So. Yeah. And so we'll talk about that. But I, I, I wanted to mention one thing uh, as we're going in. I wanted to get your take on this. So Yeah. You've been, you've been teasing this privately for <laughs> well, I mentioned this to you, but I so. wouldn't tell you exactly what it was. So I had uh, one of our uh, favorite breweries from our trip uh, up north to the great city of Seattle was Rubens Brews. Yep. Uh, and I was very excited the other day to see a uh, six-pack, and this is in our local Zupans. Well, shout out to Zupans for having a good beer selection. Uh, a six-pack of Rubens uh, Hazelicious, if I remember okay. correctly, Hazy IPA. Yep. Which is a fantastic beer. I have not had Hazelicious. No, you'd remember it because it's a fantastic beer, but it looks terrible. Yeah. It, it yeah. looks like Hazy dish. beers do look terrible. No, no, no. But this one in particular, it looks like dishwater. It's gray. It has, n yeah. Oh, interesting. So this is my this is my take, which is it's a really tasty beer. I recommend it to everybody. I don't want to get I don't want to get you wrong, but it's in a can. When you decant it, it's gray and it looks just awful. See, this is we had this we've had this debate for a long time where you just you always decant everything. Yes, and you criticize you me for always for you not always decant decanting anything. things. Well, okay. now you I see the virtue of not decanting. <laughs> well, this, in this case, yes, but a hazy IPA. You want to decant it. You want to let it to express and express itself. Give those off those aromas. It's very hard to get those aromas from the little. You just got to dig your nose into the top of that can. Just well, apparently, this time. go deep. Just get in there. So my point was, this is. I mean, adding color is not hard, and this was a conscious choice. So I was very confused because these are very talented. Uh, exceptional, I would even say, brewers that brew amazing beers across a wide variety, and yet they made this decision to write to 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 brew this beer that looks terrible. Mm -hmm. yeah, Thoughts? Eh, eh. What, <laughs> like, what, what's going on? What happened? I don't know. Hazy okay. IPAs are just hideous. Right. They're just absolutely hideous. No, actually, I love I love a good hazy IPA when it's got a nice. Uh, I like. Well, okay, I don't like the super milkshakey ones. But I do like a nice hazy beer. Okay, so here's the other other aspect, and this is what I'm waiting. This is going to be my primer for the. For well, the... I, I I would like to add one thing here. Okay, I was recently in New York, as uh, we've mentioned. Yes, 
And uh, there was a beer, there, uh, it's a brewery there called Other Half, which is one of these famous IPA, uh, uh, hazy IPA houses. Okay, right. And they have a series of beers which are made with a lot of oats. Yeah. And they call them oat creams, mm. which I love that name. Uh, oat cream. I hear that and I think I want an oat cream. <laughs> okay. I don't know what it is, but I okay. want an oat cream. And these things, they're, I don't know if gray is right. They're milky white. Very uh, unusual looking beers. Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe that's the key here. I think maybe, yeah, maybe that's the deal. So this one literally, literally looks like dishwater. Yeah. Like this drinking dishwater. I, I would say dishwater would be a description <laughs> okay. of the well, oat maybe creams. That's it. Maybe, maybe I'm just not up with the trend. <laughs> like, I think, okay. hey, old man, get with the program. <laughs> All the kids want the gray beers. <laughs> All right. So here's my prime for that. You know what? You, uh, fun uh, trivia quiz. Yes. You know what grisette means? Uh, oat. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> it means little gray beer. Oh, well, I could have actually, if I had thought about that, yeah, I might I have actually You, you, you might have gotten that. But it wasn't actually because the beer itself was so gray. As as the, the miners who came out of the mines were uh, covered in in uh, in, in uh, 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 miner dust. And yeah, so they, they were gray. They were gray. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it's not the first time that uh, gray has appeared in the beer annals. And you need a man like me to deliver you these okay, useless, use useless facts. All right, so per, per, perhaps because I didn't respect the beer enough or perhaps because I respected it that much. So here, here's my little story, and this is what I want to get uh, uh, listener feedback from. So uh, last time I opened one of these, I had just, uh, well, not just, but earlier in the day I had gone for my, my jog, so I had run about five miles, and I hadn't properly hydrated. So I was feeling dehydrated and thirsty. So what I did was I went to my fridge and I had some fresh lemonade, some nice lemonade. And so I did my own shandy. I did my own uh, um, a Rattler mm -hmm. with the hazy IPA and the lemonade. And it was fabulous. Ooh, I think you've discovered something. so good. I know. I was like the first one to figure this one out. That was the Rubens? But, no, but I went, yeah, the Rubens Hazy IPA, which was also, you know, very, very right. fruity, citrusy. Yeah, yeah. And Absolutely. then you add the lemonade yeah. and, oh, it was so good. Makes all kinds of sense. So uh, I'm, I'm wondering what the, the, the view is in these days about doing, doing that harm doing that kind of abuse to an IPA, but I think it was amazing. And I think, was, I think you've spot. just, you've just given, uh, brewers across America, a brilliant idea. <laughs> I've never thought of it before. <laughs> and, and you once again failed to monetize it. <laughs> our special genius. Uh, okay. All right. So, uh, we should, we should get things moving. Yep. We got to get to our interview with Alex, but first, of course, we have to do the news. A couple weeks ago, President Trump made the unexpected announcement that his administration was lifting tariffs on steel and aluminum Thank apported, you. <laughs> you're welcome, from Mexico and Canada. Those tariffs amounted to 25% on steel and 10% on aluminum. This is especially significant to brewers as 43% of aluminum used by the industry comes from Canada. And the Beer Institute estimated that the tariffs uh, created an effective $350 million annual tax on the industry. So this was actually very good news that uh, uh, President Trump walked that back. Yeah, a little bit. Although if it's just on Canadian aluminum, uh, even though it's a large percentage, is still there's going to be a worldwide equilibrium price, which is going to be jacked up, probably. So, uh, all right, Mr. Economist, I throw, I, I give you a little bit of chin music here. 
given that, <laughs> how much will this three hundred fifty million dollar annual tax be mitigated by by this uh, change? Uh, wait a minute. So this three hundred fifty million annual tax was estimated by the Beer Inst- Institute as a tax on the beer industry. Right. Oh. Uh, yeah. So. Um, I As a result of those tariffs. Yeah, I, I would expect that, that it would be mitigated somewhat, but not by the total amount of the tariff because, okay. you know, you, you fiddle with equilibrium prices when you, when you do this, tax. This is why all that... In other words, they can charge more, so they will. Right. And this is why the uh, whenever you tinker with oil, it doesn't really matter because it's a global commodity, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. basically the idea. Uh, okay. But that's good. So maybe our canned beers will get cheaper again. Yeah. Or yeah, at least our, or at least our, our brewers will not uh, be... Um, suffering the loss of that margin so yeah not a big fan of tariffs (laughs) just just saying yeah i'm not surprised that you're not a big fan of tariffs (laughs) okay moving on yes moving on uh in exciting monastic news i like i like that phrase right yeah i I figured (laughs) i figured everyone's on their edge of their seat Ooh, more monastic news. oh man you have some tongue twisters okay the norbertine monks of grimberg bergen Sure, sure. Announced that they were planning to brew at the monastery again. For decades, they have licensed their name to Heineken for beers made in the local market and Carlsberg for those uh, produced elsewhere. The Reverend Carl uh, Stoutemas, the Abbey's sub-prior, is learning how to brew, and he will assist head brewer Marc-Antoine Sauchon of Carlsberg. Uh, brew, uh, brewing at the Abbey dates back to the 1200s and yes. was interrupted in 1798 when the monastery was sacked during the French Revolution. Oh, come on. No beer has been made at the monastery since. There you go. Wow. Actually, that was typical all across Belgium and, and much of Europe that the French Revolution was uh, really bad for monasteries, which were all sacked and burned. <laughs> and and there was a well, lot of... Why? Just because of the anger at the, chur- anger at the church? and Yeah, the first thing they did was they burned the... Uh, the the chateau, mm-hmm. chateau, and the second thing they did is they burned the monasteries because oh. these were these were, uh, you know, it was a radical democratic yeah. uh, movement. Right. And they were symbols of the 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 power structure. The yeah, the royal and church. Okay, uh, so there you go. That's I've heard cool. of Benedictine monks brewing. There's Franciscan monks, but Norbertine monks are new to me. Yeah, uh, who was Norbert and why? He was. Uh, I, I actually I actually looked this up. He was he was um he was a saint. I don't know. He was a guy. Yeah, he did and stuff. The Norbertine monks are characterized by snowy white robes oh, okay. as opposed to the actually uh Trappist, I think you meant instead of Franciscan, which were black habits. Um so uh, yeah, Trappist, no, Trappist as well. No, I'm sorry, it's the uh, Benedictines were black and actually I don't know what the Trappists were. Brown. Purple. That's what Franciscans wear. <laughs> Do they each have their own color? Is that part of the deal? <laughs> I think so. I don't okay. know. All right. Uh, we're, 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 out, we're way outside of both of our areas of expertise here. Uh, but one little element that you didn't say is uh, Gimbergen is where? In what country? Well, it's a it's a it's a Belgian company. But, oh, Belgian. Um, uh, I mean, it, the, the 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 monastery is called Grimbergen. Or uh-huh. Grim, Grimbergen. But it's in Belgium. It's in Belgium. Okay. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, sorry. All right. Uh, okay. Well, we ought to we ought to move on uh, and get to our interview with uh, Alex Ganum of Upright Brewing. Yep. So shall we do it? Let's do it. All right. We have in a studio Alex Ganum of Upright Brewing. We're very excited about this. Uh, welcome, up- Alex. Yeah, Hi, guys. Welcome. Uh, you're located not so far from here, uh, just down the road. Um, and you have uh, Upright Brewing is now celebrating its 10th anniversary. So congratulations. Yeah. Thanks a lot. You are um, 
Upright is routinely called by people who really love good beer, one of the best breweries in, in the city, but you're not a brewery that uh, everybody knows about. And so we thought it would be great to have you in studio and talk about the unusual kinds of beers you make and how you make them. I think your approach to making beer is unusual. And also a little bit about your uh, business operation. Patrick and I are both quite interested in this as well because um, it is uh, slightly unusual for the beer industry as well. So we're going to get to all of that, but let's start with uh, the the your background and the beer. Before you you started uh, Upright 10, 10 years ago, before that, what were you doing, and, and how did you get to Portland, Oregon? Uh, let's see. We go all the way back to 2002, and um, at that time, I was living in Michigan and just, just kind of wrapped up, uh, I guess, my adolescent years. <laughs> <laughs> I never really finished school. I was, school wasn't really my bag. I don't think I had a a taste for formal education. And so I kind of just pissed around and uh, worked odd jobs and then eventually decided to move away from the Midwest. Uh, everybody said Portland's a really beautiful place. So when you're young, you just get up and go. Yeah. And uh, I came out here and actually attended culinary school when I moved out here, which was uh, really fascinating in that I think it put a lot of focus on uh, tasting. And I really thought about my palate quite a bit. And I'd always been interested in food. I think we're all probably interested in food. But I was really turned on by the perception of the senses, especially, you know, nose and taste. And so one thing leads to the next. When you live out here, you meet home brewers left and right. Everybody meets a home brewer, right? And so <laughs> this was even true back then in, in 02. And, um, yeah, we're home brewers, so yeah. you, <laughs> you met some more. Yeah. So, yeah, next thing you know, you're, you're home brewing like a storm, and you're thinking, man, I should make a career out of this. And uh, I ended up uh, working at uh, BJ's, the chamber pub here in town. Uh, I had a really wonderful experience there. I worked under Dan Peterson for a few years, and he taught me quite a bit. He was a really talented, very, very smart guy. And um, and uh, like every brewer, I think you want to open up your own gig at some point. So when I felt like the time was right, I opened Upright in uh, early 2009. Gotcha. Uh, you make um, – you're – if people walked into your tap room and looked at the menu, they'd see a lot of uh, kind of mixed fermentation, maybe roughly Belgian e kind of beers, but also a pilsner and uh, an IPA, and and it, it it looks eclectic. But um, if I were to describe upright, I would say that it it really has this uh, connective tissue to traditional European brewing. So it seems like you're really interested in uh, the kind of old techniques that come. From Europe, and you know, when when you make a beer, it seems to have a, a much shorter and direct lineage back to Europe. Is that would you just would you buy that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was living here early on in the two thousands, I worked at Belmont Station for quite a while, and uh, at that time we we had access to some really neat uh, French and Belgian beers back then. I and, remember um, that era. This was, yeah, this was b- <laughs> before they were kind of hyped up and the beers would just kind of come in and hang around and collect dust and they were inexpensive <laughs> and, and it was a dream come true, right? Cause you would just come home every day with some new beer that you've never heard of beers that you can't pronounce. You knew nothing about the breweries. There wasn't a ton of information online at the time. And, um, but the beers were just so eye opening. and it, it, the chapter you have in your book, uh, on uh, rustic French ales. Oh yeah, uh, this is secrets of master brewers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Th- that chapter one hundred percent speaks to me, and I think what we really enjoyed upright. Oh, cool. Uh, 
elaborate what part of that what the fact that the the beers show a lot of the sort of I think the individual character that you would find in a lot of Belgian ales or saisons but they're more ingredient driven and they're um they're just very well balanced but while maintaining the individual character and I and uh and hop forward too the hop component I think is significant and um for us living out here I think that you're you're drawn to using the the hops because they're available and they're they're really exciting. You have, you have so much to play with, and in those French beers, even if you're drinking old ones that are past their prime, you can sort of like rewind in your brain and imagine. I think I know what this beer tasted like 12 months ago, uh-huh. and then you sort of formulate your beers. I think based on that. Yeah. Well, let's keep talking. But um, you brought four beers uh, for us to try as we're going along. Thank and, you. Uh, yes. Thank you very much. Is that an appropriate amount? Uh, it, that's a minimal amount. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, we don't always have four beers, so we're pretty excited about that. Um, we've got, uh, the anniversary beer, I guess we're going to try first. Oh, yes. So I think one thing that, um, Pat, Patrick's going to open and pour this and I'll ask you a question while he does that. And we've got our, 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 uh, our classic uh, uh, beer mic, Edwina, here, so she yeah. can pick up the. And apparently, the sound. I and, and Alex uh, told me to be a little careful with this, so Edwina, watch out. Oh, there it comes. There All it right. goes. There it goes. <laughs> uh, not too bad. No. Not like some of my homebrews. It's always good to have the heads up. We, I think we've all opened those bottles that uh, surprise you, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think um, people who know Upright well. Yeah. are aware of your barrel aging program and uh even when you started you had four beers that were sort of roughly in the the saison slash belgian tradition they were not barrel aged uh but this i mean i think a lot of people probably connect you to the belgian tradition um so talk about this saison and saisons in general and what, oh that's what, so good you know, that's what, really good alex <laughs> thanks <laughs> um that's fabulous yeah it's incredibly aromatic uh, yeah. this beer in particular is a lot of fun i think because something we wanted to do with the anniversary saison was i think bring together just certain characteristics that we really enjoy but a lot of times it, it can be tricky when you want to put together a lot of different elements mm-hmm. to a, a sort of a kind of a, a high degree or a degree of um where you're really noticing stuff, or it's not so subtle. Um, although that has so many different meanings, I think, now in sort of modern beer time, right? Like, yeah. I don't know what subtle means anymore in 2019. <laughs> but but this beer for me is is about pushing, uh, you know, barrel-age characteristics of, like, different barrels, mm-hmm. um, different Britannomyces levels, uh, hot bitterness, which I think, the writing the hot bitterness line against uh, like sort of an acidic line is, is uh-huh. a really kind of fun but but also tricky like line to push and then you're talking about a beer that you know you might not release it for like a year or two after you produce it and then somebody might even hold on to it for a significant amount of time after that so like what what are they going to get i mean the hops are going to fade even the bitterness is going to fail oh, oh, the beer is always in flux I and mean, you know you can argue all day that like you know the brewer part of you may feel like pulling your hair out because it's you know you never really know what to expect and you want to control it all but at the same time it's there's that's the beauty of it right that it it is evolving and that you try to set the beer up in a way where that it's it's always going to be in some window of tasting pleasant and enjoyable so this beer has um a pretty complex palette and it it feels like it maybe has some younger beer and some older beer mixed together is that 
True. It, this one is mostly older beer. There's a very small percentage of young beer in there. But we're talking maybe like three to five percent. Okay. There's a. Uh, it's incredibly lively and estery. Uh, the 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 fruitiness is is really in the aroma. You get that a lot, yes. and uh, it obviously has the effervescence. So. Um, I was it's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love that beer. <laughs> I get, I get, um, you know, you get, you get the the quality of the dryness of the Debreton Hyaces. You get uh, a little, a little bit of that kind of uh, funkiness, but there's also a tiny bit of acetic in there, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. It's a, it's a very minor note, but it, in this case, it really brightens everything up. Yeah. How do you compose this? How many different uh, barrels and ages? And uh, I think. This is a thing that Patrick and I really love is blending, and mm-hmm. we don't. It seems a little bit like wizardry. Wizardry. So describe your process. I mean, wizardry is probably romanticizing it too yeah, much, well. right? I mean, in a tiny. This is brewery, your chance. <laughs> in a tiny brewery, like I mean, we're we're really focused on putting together beer into barrels that we feel are, uh, I guess, very sound, where we have a lot of confidence in the barrels yielding a, a tasty beer in the end. So that we're really banking on those barrels. I don't want to say doing exactly what we wanted to do, but at least giving us some really easy stuff to work with. And so it's it's unusual for us to be dumping casks or, or setting stuff aside. Usually when we fill casks with the intent of blending, like nine times out of ten, we're, we're probably going to blend what we set out to blend from the get-go. Okay. Um, it's not as... So you're repeating uh, in the barrels, you're using these barrels over and over again? Oh, yeah, the barrels that have been making this beer have been making this beer for I don't even know how many years I'd have to go back and look but but several years so do you uh, do you just use the yeast that's resident in them or do you also pitch uh, additional it depends uh-huh. S- sometimes we'll add more if we feel like we want to change the beer um, if you know anything about us you, you probably know that we're not hell-bent on making the beers consistent year to year and that that it's something we borrowed from phantom you know a a brewery that is i think super fun and quirky and that they're obviously embracing the fact that you could put the exact same label on a beer you know year to year and change it up considerably we we don't change your things up that much you won't get a beer that's brown (laughs) one year and yellow the next year or whatever but um but yeah we have no qualms about you know definitely like tweaking the recipe adding different barrels or different yeast strains that kind of thing yeah uh so how many barrels will go into uh will will create this composition i think that batch was a blend of six and uh one of those was a uh, gin barrel with the rest being uh old pinot barrels that were pretty well spent okay you do a beer that you didn't bring today called pathways Mm -hmm. uh which is one of my favorite beers last year the 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 previous version was one of the, literally the best beers I ever had. Oh. I, on, on, <laughs> honestly, it was just staggering uh, complexity. It was very sessionable, and anybody who didn't know it was eight percent got in trouble pretty fast. Uh, <laughs> how many how many ba- how many barrels uh, goes go into that one? Uh, and and are this are they the same barrels? The Pathways blend is. Uh, typically a four cask blend give or take one cask okay. uh, but we have a total of about 25 or so in the brewery at any given time okay so it's not always the same four no no th- those vary uh, quite a bit okay i think we want to come back to uh saisons and and barrel aging especially fruit which is another thing that is a big part of your your uh 
your jam. But you get so much fruitiness out of the esters. In this I scene. know oh, it's man. so fruity. That's the thing. <laughs> it's the reason I thought there was fresh beer in this is because if you ever tasted fresh lambic, it is insanely fruity, and it just really you know those esters get converted and and changed as brettanomyces get in there. But um, well, I mean, how old is fresh lambic though? Well, I mean, if you taste it like uh, if you taste like three month old lambic. Uh, which never goes into the bottle, but if you taste it at the barrel, it's uh, just nothing but esters. It's crazy. It's really? Like, it's like juice. Yeah, oh. I did that at uh, at Frank Bone. He let me taste some of that stuff, and I could not believe it. It didn't taste like it didn't even taste like beer. It just tasted like juice. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you have some of those those qualities that are just absolutely pure fruit, uh, kind of, you know, sparkling. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> So as we're so as we're talking about beer, I'm just going to interject something, uh, which is when you started your brewery, you had this. You were talking about some of your influences, but did you think about sort of what the market needed, or it was just all about your passion and your uh, your vision? I mean, you got to think about the market to some degree, but mm-hmm. at the same time, when you open up a very small spot, um, you got to sort of take advantage of that and figure it shouldn't be too hard to sell such a tiny amount of anything, right? yeah (laughs) it's yeah that's that's true but you you don't have you don't you're you're not one of these breweries that releases 150 beers a year no no i don't i'm not into that yeah so you know you each one has to pull its weight you gotta you gotta sell them out and i know this because one of my very favorite beers that you make you don't make you don't sell anymore because the billy (laughs) the billy the mountain yeah we're we're gonna bring that back oh (laughs) you've made my day i think we're gonna bring it back in a in a different form, of course. We're not going to bring it back the way that we did before. It'll okay. be now that we have this this uh, English yeast that we're using regularly. Now, I'm thinking about bringing it back without the Britannomyces. I don't okay. know. This is a long geeky conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can have another time. <laughs> One of my favorite beers. It was this, the first beer you ever brewed, and it's an English old ale, and it was made with with Britannomyces. Um, and and it's actually not a terrible way for us to transition into. This, you're a really big fan of British beers, which not everyone is. And we have one here, which you just pulled off a pin, uh, which uh, you had just tapped. Of uh, This is the Super Cool? Yeah, this is our Super Cool IPA. Nice. So uh, we, cast condition version. So this is uh, two hours in a crowler. Two hours in a crowler. We're going to see how the cast conditioning holds up. The, uh, what does it say, a not-so-real ale at this point yeah. now? I, don't know. <laughs> I think it's still is real. It, is Edwina on? Let's see. I don't know. Ah. Oh, I'm making a mess of the studio. <laughs> oh, come on, Patrick. Those things are always awkward to pull yeah, off. Yeah, they are awkward. There we go. That's all right. We don't have to clean up. So um, the cool thing, I mean, I think the, the cool thing that I, I appreciate about your interests are uh, you like, you know, classic uh, English ales and classic uh, Bavarian ales. Your kind of flagship or one of your bestsellers is a Pilsner. Uh, and you do, I know every, maybe not every year, but you did, you do oyster stout commonly and, uh, other kind of classic English styles and super cool is your IPA. And I, uh, I, I put that in, (laughs) in, uh, in air quotes, talk about super cool, uh, and how it's different than the hazies that you might find at another brewery. Yes. Super cool is a a beer we've been producing for a good while now, but um, <laughs> it's undergone some pretty significant changes just recently. Uh, oh, we Patrick like to brew. So good. Sorry. Uh, the, uh, oh um, one of the quirky things about the brewery is that we had originally set it up for a, a bigger focus on farmhouse style beers. So the majority right. of our fermentation space is open for, uh, open fermenters. Right. And open fermenters really limit what you can bring in yeast wise if you'd like to reuse the yeast. 
And so uh, for a long time, to kind of keep things easy, we were uh, producing super cool with our Saison uh, yeast and just fermenting it really cold right. to sort of subdue the Saison character. And it was just kind of the, the practical way for us to produce something that we can call an IPA. But really it was like leaning into this sort of Saison <laughs> farmhouse realm because you can't really completely suppress those yeasts. And those yeasts aren't great at highlighting hop aromas anyways. Right. And it finished, it seemed like it, it tasted like it finished pretty dry. Yeah. Yeah, there was kind of like no no getting around that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not typical, especially for today's palates. So mm. now now you just try to a drink of this one. Describe this. You're using a different yeast, and what are you shooting for, and what do you got here? Yeah, so, Patrick's jaw was just hanging open. Yeah, yeah this so is, by the way, the cast, the cast character preserved quite well. Yeah, it does. It's the, um, lovely. Uh, a few months ago, we produced a batch of um, traditional English bitter um, in part with uh, Bill Schneller, who you probably mm. know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we met with Bill. I've known Bill for a really long time, and of course, if you know Bill, you know that he's pretty much the authority on UK style beers and bitters in particular. So when we were leading up to our 10th anniversary, I thought um, it would be really nice to have something very low alcohol on tap Mm -hmm. because I was going to be there for like 14 hours that day. And (laughs) I've gotten too drunk in the past on our birthday. So I was thinking I want a beer that I can drink all day long. So uh, I selfishly made the bitter just for myself. (laughs) (laughs) It worked, by the way. I think I drank like 10 of those and still managed to drive home totally sober. It was fantastic. It's amazing how a beer that's sub 4% alcohol will just never really get you drunk. Yeah. Yeah. But um, that's the that's the genius of the pub beer. Yeah, it's it's great. So but the the bitter came out fantastic. And we brought in this Yorkshire yeast um, and it really surprised us. We really liked the character that it had and the way it performed in the open fermenter was I mean, we expected it to do well, but it did even better than we would have imagined. So then we thought, you know, we had a, a batch of super cool on the schedule for the following week, and we decided let let's crop this yeast off the bitter and and roll it on the super cool and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of brewery we are. When you're small, you kind of do things on a whim, and I think that you you get enough confidence to the point where you can you can do stuff and know more or less where you're going to go. And you're not going to have any, like, major problems. So you can, like, yeah, take a beer that you produce year-round and just throw a completely different yeast at it right. and have no qualms about, you know, throwing it out with the same name and everything else. I mean, this is Portland, too. People are, I think, pretty receptive to to changes and stuff. You just have to make the beer tasty. At the end of the day, like, you can change it all day long, but if it's tasty, who's going to complain, right? Right, yeah. And right. so we uh, ran the yeast on the super cool and uh, and we loved the way it came out it came out because it was a much higher gravity beer than the bitter uh, the character of the yeast really started the show and mm-hmm. it's got this really lovely ester profile mm-hmm. with a lot of stone fruit and kind of floral mm-hmm. peach mm-hmm. and uh, of course like those kind of flavors went really well with the hops that we were using um, and so now we're employing the yeast full time and producing uh, more super cool with this yeast and other hoppy beers, and it's in like regular rotation in our open fermenters. And how has the response been? Have people noticed and commented on it? Yeah, I think the response has been pretty favorable. Um, yeah, people are really enjoying the beer quite a bit, and it's still not uh, your sort of typical West Coast IPA. Right. Um, it does have a, a significant yeast profile and and uh, ester profile, but no, it's it's. N- nothing like a typical American IPA. No, <laughs> I think that's. I think it's a very upright uh, IPA that way. Yeah, I'm. I'm really happy with it, even though I. I feel like it. It does speak to us about how. Yeah, it's. It's pretty reasonably balanced. It's not like a one note hot punch to the head and the aroma by any no, means. No. And, and you know we don't want to make a beer like that. Um, it's, 
it's a little bit stronger than you would find in Yorkshire, but it's but uh, I think if you serve this on a pub at a pub and you know on cask, um, it would be recognizable to people there. So yeah, I mean the idea is really it's it's pretty similar to an American IPA recipe or formulation, just fermented with the classic Yorkshire yeast in an open fermenter. So it's kind of like a hybrid in that sense. Which your open fermenter is one of those kind of classic traditional things that you find in the Czech Republic. A lot of uh, pilsters are made with open fermenters. And mm-hmm. of course, a lot of open fermentation in, in the UK, at least in the old breweries. Yeah, but ours so. are round now. I wish we got square ones. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just about to ask you that. I couldn't remember. Yeah, but they're... Um, their their height width ratio is pretty good, I think, for for uh, English beers, right? They're pretty they're pretty uh, wide. Yeah, exactly. So that's you're not getting a lot of pressure. Yeah, and the, and the tank that we produce is super cool, and is the one with the the biggest or I guess smallest um, height to width ratio. Okay, yeah, we won't go down that road. <laughs> that's, that's that's good for yeast expression. So there you go. Let's talk about. Uh, the brewery's named Upright, which is sorry. Uh, uh, we've we've been keeping that close. To we've me. been bogarting the beer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, this is a phenom- another phenomenon. I'm going to probably repeat myself too much, but uh, I really love that beer. It's... A, a fun thing about the cask too is we've been we have one five gallon pin in the brewery, and uh, we've been filling it up occasionally, probably like once or twice a month since, since we've been using the new yeast. Right. And, uh, you know, we'll tap this today when we open up the tasting room at 430. And at the end of the day, that's it. You know, and, and I love the sort of yeah. immediacy of, of a cask beer. To me, that's like such a beautiful thing. And it's just it's a moment. Yeah. And it's in and out. And, yeah. you know, if you enjoy it, you enjoy it. And if not, maybe you're looking forward to the next one. But right. I just feel like that that's a really beautiful thing as opposed to like this, you know, people sort of, I think, like hoarding bottles of beer and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, you've given me a beautiful moment right now, so thank you. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> so the brewery's named Upright, which uh, is – tell us about that. Yeah, Upright is named in reference to uh, Charles Mingus's primary instrument, the Upright Bass. Uh, the brewery building is uh, – if you've never visited – um, you're probably imagining a uh, normal brewery, but Upright isn't in a normal location. Or <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Upright's in the basement of a 65,000-square-foot office building and uh, in the middle of Portland, right across from where the Trailblazers play. Um, it's, it's surrounded by two massive streets. Yeah, it's it's a pretty bizarre space for a brewery. It kind of fell into my lap. That's kind of a long story, but the brewery ended up there for better or for worse. And... Um, but the building has a lot of history. It was designed by a pretty famous architect in the 20s. And um, in the 1950s, the space right above the brewery, which is kind of the main ballroom of the building, um, used to be Portland's most famous jazz club. And there were a lot of famous players that came through there, like Louis Armstrong, mm-hmm. Thelonious Monk, uh, mm. all sorts. I mean, that was kind of the heyday of the Portland jazz scene in the in the mid-50s. Um, and so because of the jazz connection with the building and fact that we love jazz and specifically charles mingus is like to me mingus isn't like a jazz musician he's a an american composer and he was very i think open with where he drew his inspiration from and that's exactly how we're formulating the beers where it's like they're yeah they're not 
you know, people sometimes want to call you, oh, you're like the Saison brewery, right? Or the Belgian brewery. It's like kind of, but no, you know what I mean? Like right. there's all the French influence, the German influence, the really old UK influence. If you're talking about stuff like the Billy and old ales with Britannomyces and stuff. So you draw influence from everywhere and you never want to be pigeonholed. And I think that Mingus really spoke to that. So. Mm -hmm. And before you came to the studio, you stopped in at a record store, bought some records. Oh, uh, yeah, Mississippi Records, which is a uh, block from here, is the, <laughs> probably one of the best record stores in the, in the whole West Coast. And, and if, uh, if we visit the brewery, we might see you spinning some uh, vinyl there. Uh, that's a kind of a big, a big cool theme of the brewery. I, I've, uh, I've enjoyed sometimes watching you brew while you had this going, and it seems like music is really embedded in the DNA of this whole brewery. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, everyone at the brewery, um, we're a pretty small crew, but uh, we're all pretty big music heads, like most folks, I guess. But, you know, we, we love music, and uh, and music is a big inspiration. I mean, for us, inspiration isn't just coming from other breweries and stuff like that. Like, you get inspiration from all over the place, and music's a big part of it, and it's, um, it's nice to enjoy it, and it's maybe it's most natural like analog form i guess is vinyl right it just <laughs> yeah. you know if you have a good setup and and some nice records it, it sounds really special you're getting all the all the detail and all the nuance as if like the you're drinking a beer that's conditioned really proper and being served proper so yeah it's interesting um we recently talked to uh, dick cantwell and we we're kind of talking about the 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 difference between innovation and tradition and how they're both both elements of craft uh, you know, you push things forward with with new ideas, but there's also this ancient lineage of knowing how to do things. So you see that like it's interesting how you talk about Charles Mingus's uh, you know improvisation, which is part of the innovation side, but also the you know the the it's jazz and there's this old tradition that that it comes from, and and uh, you you spin them on vinyl which is kind of analog so everything's very analog there at the brewery very hands-on yeah yeah very hands-on for <laughs> sure <laughs> but it's it's done that way intentionally i mean right. that's you know we, we set it up like that from the get-go and, and we knew that we wanted to keep it small so yeah so i know you're going to introduce a new beer here but i want to ask just uh, as we're as we're selecting among the remaining two uh, I'm opening you, one. You, yeah. you talk. Okay. You quickly <laughs> established a stellar reputation for making uh, outstanding and unique beers. Uh, and I imagine that you could have grown quite a bit if you wanted to, but you haven't. You've stayed in the same space. You solved the same original brewery. Uh, can you talk to a little bit about your business philosophy and, and, and what it is that drives you and why you've made that decision? Yeah, this is kind of a can be a little bit of a tricky one to talk about. I mean, I suppose when I opened up the brewery, I was pretty young. And so at the time, I didn't have any intention of expanding the brewery to any large degree because, oh, wow, I uh, remember Fred's uh, sign, uh, listen to your beer. Yeah, <laughs> we listen to our beer that's, here. That's, we have the special Edwina Mike here to yeah. listen to the beer. And you've done a better job than I have, by the way. So. Oh, well, thank you. But um, It's the not the PhD. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the brewery, you know, at the time, I don't think it was too outrageous to to have a tiny brewery i think that no. the, the the growth that we've been seeing more so since we've opened like really in the last five years probably is i think more indicative of what what people are wanting to do in business right now mm -hmm. um i think when i opened up it wasn't um it wasn't too unusual to to want to keep a, a business or a brewery on the tiny side right um 
So, yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, you set out with certain goals. I'm, I've always been a really long-term thinker. I remember when I met with our landlord originally, and he said, what kind of term do you want to sign on the lease? And I said, oh, at least 15 years, and his jaw <laughs> drops. And, you know, there's 28-year-old me thinking, like, man, this is this is just the beginning, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So it's just different perspective. It's different ways of looking at things. Right. But you talked before we started the podcast about how so you t- you thought that – there should be space for someone who thinks it's okay to just operate a small business and and maintain that, and that's sort of the way that uh, you view it. Yeah, I mean, you got to ask yourself what, what what are your goals, right? I mean, mm-hmm. are you producing beer because you love it? Are you, hopefully right, or are you producing mm-hmm. beer because uh, maybe you have some ego and you enjoy seeing your stuff all over the place? Right. I mean, that's okay too if that's your thing, but you should admit that, you know, if, that, if that's what it is, or are you doing it because you want to make a million bucks? Right. You know, that's a red flag because you can make a million bucks doing other stuff a lot more easily. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it's good to identify that stuff and I think be honest with yourself. Yeah. All right, Jeff, tell us what you just opened, by the way. So we opened uh, a beer called, actually, Alex knows. Expressions. Expressions. Uh, expansions. Expansions. Oh, expansions. Sorry. My yeah. apologies. Hard to read on that label. It is a little hard to read. Uh, also, we have old eyes. Um, <laughs> In a dimly lit studio. So it's got white uh, German grapes, which are pronounced. Uh I just call them Gewürz, but you can. Uh, ah, that's good. That's it. Let's 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 go with that. Gewürztraminer. Gewürztraminer. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, uh, Southern Oregon Gewürztraminer. Okay, and um, you uh, to shift back to the beer for a little bit. Uh, do a lot of beer that uh, your barrel aging beer. A lot of that stuff is uses local fruit. Mm-hmm. So uh, white uh, white wines. You've got uh, a couple that use uh, Pinot grapes. I think. Is it two? Do you have uh, one? Just one. Just one. It's okay. Yeah. I wish we could do more. There's so much wonderful fruit out here. Yeah. Um, you do um, uh, Fantasia, which has peaches. Is that right? Yep. Peaches. Uh, and we've got one here that's going to, we're going to talk about in a minute that's got some uh, cherries. So talk about the difference between making uh, just standard beer that you're putting, you know, mixed fermentation beer and, and blending that versus. Uh, using fruit as a flavor component. Uh, oh, wow. I mean, uh, fruit is a, such a distinct element in a beer. And uh, like an in- interesting aspect in this one, for instance, is that in this one, the grapes had already been used in a different beer. So I think a lot of the sugar and acidity from the, that fruit had already been... Oh, so you had you had fermented it once already. Yeah, exactly. Oh, interesting. And the funny thing is that in in this beer... I feel like you can actually pick up more details of the aroma of the Gewürz than in the original beer that had fermented it in the first place. Mm. Where in that beer, you're getting more of the, the fruit acidity, which is different than a fermentation-based acidity. And a lot of people forget that when they drink you know, sour fruit beers. They think, oh, there's a bunch of lactobacillus in here. But really, if you've got that much fruit in a beer, you're not just tasting or experiencing like a, a, a lactic acid or whatever acetic acid based from fermentation like you're getting fruit acidity because i mean fruit juice basically right so a lot of people forget about that and that acidity is going to come across so different on the palate but in a beer like this where the fruit's already been fermented you, you're going back and getting like the natural fermentation acidity mm-hmm. but still with the fruit aromatics and, and flavor which is pretty neat it's amazing. I'm shocked to hear that the that's 
you know, second fermentation because the it's very vinous. I would say that the white wine grapes really express themselves quite pronounced both on the on the nose and the palate. Yeah. So it's interesting. I'm well, really it, shocked it was, to hear that. It was a very high quantity of fruit still. And, mm. and the fruit was um, picked pretty late. So, um, I mean, just very, very intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really uh, quite, yeah, it is quite pronounced. I mean, mm-hmm. I think if you, if they, it was one of those beers a lot of people say, I don't like beer. And then if you ask them if they like uh, wine and they and they do there are plenty of beers that you can offer them that they'll like and this is one of those ones that you could say well i have a beer for you this is this is you're, you're not even going to recognize this as beer this tastes like wine like oh yeah a, it's just like a sparkling wine it's very sparkling too you've got quite a bit of effervescence it's got the, the classic gewurz notes uh yeah it you does. know allspice a very floral rose lychee um mm-hmm. those those are all aromas that would be very typical to see in a, in a gewurztraminer wine yeah. but then you've got some really nice I think mineral qualities there too. I think mm-hmm. when you have such a high level of fruit and we do a long contact time, you know, with the skins and everything and some of those we left whole clusters. So you've got, you know, a lot of stem material and, and you are going to pull some really neat layers of minerality of, you know, or other mineral-esque flavors, right? Like and slate. Ta- you're probably getting more tannins if you've got the stems in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very it's interesting. A, it's a very bright beer too. Yeah, it is. It's, um, it, it's actually... It looks clearer and more Pilsner-like than the beer that we had uh, recently kicking and screaming, which was <laughs> a little bit cloudier. <laughs> it was very cloudy, yeah. Mm. Oh, that's another excellent thing. Can so I try you, that one? Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no I worries. Keep, I, I had one yesterday, too, but it's always <laughs> nice to revisit, right? Yeah. So you also have big relationships with uh, local growers, which I think, you know, Oregon, brewers who don't use fruit in Oregon always surprise me because we have such great fruit here. So uh, you, you uh, w- your, your wine growers and your other growers you have connections with, Mm-hmm. Uh, d- how do you find those growers and what do you look for in fruit? How did we get to, I mean, we get a lot of our fruit from Trevor Baird and I can't remember if I met him through Alan at Hair the Dog or if I met Trevor through just going to the farmer's market because <laughs> he sells a lot of peaches at the market. Uh-huh. I mean, this goes back a long time and I've always had a pretty poor memory, but <laughs> it's going to get worse. <laughs> yeah, it's going to get worse. <laughs> Trust us. Trevor's fruit's beautiful. I mean, he kind of specializes in peaches, but he grows all sorts of different stone fruit. And and uh, I mean, and the other thing, too, that you realize over the years is that there's so many different varieties. I mean, even just coming from his farm, we're able to get, I don't know how many different varieties of peaches, cherries, apricots, nectarines. I mean, it's a lot of fun. So you're really zeroing in on the, on the varieties that you like or trying to get them in a window where you really enjoy them and that kind of thing. How many different fruits do you use in a uh, year, we're, say? We're, typically right now we're using um, cherries at least once a year, peaches, uh, some other stone fruit, if we can finagle some other stone fruit, depending on like logistically what we can kind of bring into the brewery, and um, at least one wine grape or maybe two. Mm-hmm. So we'll do pinot every year and then if we can like figure out a way to get another one going we'll do we've done gewurz twice we did muscat once the muscat was really nice mm-hmm. i remember um, that beer yeah that was that was a really really cool grape it actually has almost like a hoppy quality to it in the way that it's fruity and grassy uh oh man i'm remembering that one <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun working with with ingredients and product like that yeah you know, it's just beautiful. 
Yeah, uh, I'm about to open this last bottle. So, which is unlabeled. So you have to tell us yeah, what this yeah, is. Tell us what it is. Yeah, so this is it. a batch that we have conditioning right now. Um, we do a beer um, that we try to keep available uh, all the time called Ives. It's a beer that is a uh, we kind of call it our sort of house or stock wild ale. It uses um, a grist that kind of approximates a, a lambic beer, but it's by no means produced in a traditional manner. Um, and we ferment this in casks with uh, just a variety of different yeast and bacteria. The whole fermentation happens in the cask. We try to set it up so that the fermentation is drawn out very slowly. Uh, we're kind of doing the opposite of what brewers typically do, where you want to have like a very lively, healthy fermentation. We want In this beer, we wanted to have it go really slow so that there's just no rush. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that we can develop um, kind of a more interesting profile over the long term that way. So this particular batch is what normally when we release the Ives, it's just an, uh, an old kind of wheat and barley beer. Um, but in this one, we had uh, a few barrels with uh, two different varieties of cherries. Yeah. And uh, I think that these these are really beautiful cherries. I mean, a lot of people will talk about the, you know, the classic cherry, uh, cherry variety for Lambic beer. Um, Cherubic. Yeah, that's right. I can never pronounce that. <laughs> that's probably not quite right. But, yeah, but the uh, but I feel like you know p- people like sort of put that variety on a pedestal and think like, oh, if you want to, I mean, people out here, right, we're, we're are, are trying to get that cherry, and it's like, come on, man, like there are so many good varieties. Cherries, that, I yeah. mean, you know, n- no diss to Belgium, but like I think our varieties are better, and right. like I really do. I can say that with a straight face, and I, I think. A, the aroma profile of this beer, even so young, um, this beer's only been in the bottle for, I think, 11 or 12 days, so it's still a long ways from release. But I think that just sticking your nose in that glass tells you that we don't need to be bringing in a, a Belgian cherry variety. We've, we've got our own right here that do just fine. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, which kind of cherries do you have in this one? Uh, this is a combination of a variety called Black Pearl and one called Chalon. Oh, cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know Chalon, I, uh, which is... The name of like a mountain or lake, r- r- lake in lake. Uh, Washington. Washington. Yes. Yeah, there you are. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so this raises two questions about brewing. How long do you leave the fruit on the beer when you put it in the barrel? Typically, a oh, range. I mean, that can depend. It could be uh, two, three months. It could be a full year. And does that depend on the 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 way the beer is behaving or the for fruit variety or how does how do you? There's a lot of variables there. I mean, yeah. it might just be a purely logistical thing. I mean, okay. A lot of times after... Ah, <laughs> uh, pragmatics. People oh, yeah. underestimate how much of a brewery is defined by pragmatics. Oh, yeah. gosh. Yeah, but it's, it, you know, that's not sexy, right? So right. nobody talks about it, but it's it's the truth. Um, but yeah, the... um, I mean, in, in our experience, typically after like... And, and it really depends on the fruit and if you're like breaking it down or like what you're doing, the temperatures that you're dealing with, but... After three to six months, I mean, you, you've gotten probably all you want to get out of that fruit. Mm-hmm. So if you're mm-hmm. letting it sit longer than that, I don't think you're you're getting any harm by any means. If anything, you're just pulling out more tannin, mm-hmm. which is just going to give you more longevity down the road. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of do whatever makes sense at that point. So the other thing that's really a, a huge part of the Belgian tradition and, and what, what you do is uh, what the Belgians call... Uh, refermentation in the bottle. It's not just bottle conditioning. It's not just a way of fermenting. The, it's not just a way of carbonating the beer. It's a way of biotransforming the beer. How will this beer change? Uh, how long will it be in the bottle? I mean, it 
you know, if you if you only wanted carbonation, it's perfectly carbonated. We have a beautiful white snowy head, not quite white, but ecru, let's say. <laughs> uh, I was about to say, it's he's talking about beautiful cherries. It produces a beautiful looking beer. It's, it's a beautiful and beer. And the cherry color bleeds very subtly into the head. But this is, you've created a little, uh, a tiny little test tube of biochemistry that will change over the course of how long and, and what will that change be like. And so what do you, what, what does this beer taste like to you now and how will it change? Right now, it's definitely way too young. I mean, of course, yeah, the, the carbonation level's there, and that's probably not going to change very much from here on out. It's eating all the sugars, so then what happens? Then, I mean, you're you're waiting for all the, all the flavors to harmonize, and then and also for, I think, a, a more nuanced ester profile to, to kind of continue to emerge. It's already there, but, you know, and there's also, like, I don't know if you guys noticed, like, a little bit of diacetyl in here, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's kind of normal for a beer that's this young. That'll clean up, and that could clean up by, like, next week or a couple weeks it's just it depends when you have like a lot of the mixed firm stuff going on sometimes it'll be slower to kind of take that back but eventually that diacetyl will disappear and then yeah and then you're just kind of waiting for i think that the acids to sort of come together in a pleasant way right and then the just the, the flavor profile overall to just sort of again like harmonize for lack of a better term and a lot of that is going to be dependent on the storage of the of the bottles like you have them warm medium warm cold you know or what do you have them on their side where there's more exposure for the yeast into the beer or mm-hmm. not like that kind of thing and so a lot of times we'll end up moving stuff around quite a bit okay these beers are really like a labor of love i mean some of these beers where we feel like they're kind of being a little bit stubborn and they're like 90 percent there but they just don't seem to want to get to that final point <laughs> you start moving them and flipping them and you're talking about like you know 100 200 cases and you're like moving them like every week and like this goes on for like seven months and then when you finally sell them you're like god i just pff, i'm done you know like you, you know you don't even like the beer at that point <laughs> you just yeah. want to move on to the next project so when people look at the price tag, they don't realize that you guys have had to nurture that thing the, along. Not interested in the barrels. How much manual labor yeah, is involved? Beers are a steal. I'll just say that. Right? <laughs> uh, I have a question. So, Jeff, uh, you talked about your culinary background, and Jeff recently wrote in his blog about Greg Higgins and how he s- sort of was a pioneer in pairing, in oh, pairing yeah. beer with fine food. That was awesome. Yeah, I and like your and your beer is amazingly complex and subtle and and would pair extremely well with food. So I'm wondering how much of a relationship you have with local chefs and how much uh, you think about the pairing of beer and food. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I think too much about oh that looks pretty doesn't it yeah the, uh, <laughs> port, port it's out not the clear but cool. the head looks good and, yeah uh, yeah i'm not like a big like food and beer pairing guy you know what i mean i just mm-hmm. i really right. like to enjoy tasty beverages and tasty food and yeah. I, I don't try to make it fussy or complicated but yeah i guess i'm wondering wondering more about our our local restaurant chefs reaching out to you for beers that they think would be particularly good with their menu or oh yeah i mean we we talk to cooks all the time and, mm-hmm. and vice versa i think yeah. there's you know portland's such a small town so right. those kind of conversations i think naturally happen even when you're not looking for them right right um and that's kind of a fun part of living in this region without right. a doubt like the chefs definitely tend to be interested in um and yeah, whatever you want to call it, like not just I don't even want to say craft beer, but right. but like like nuanced beer, or like yeah. or higher level beer, like you right. know they, they they think about it as the point, Good. the way that they're thinking about uh, their own food, and um, 
and vice versa. And I think a lot of brewers you talk to, if you talk to Ben Edmonds and a lot of the, these guys, like, you know, they, they really get in the food for the, for the exact same reason. So it goes full circle. Right. One thing that happened in Portland that most people don't know about Portland, which is our, kind of our secret power is Pilsners. We have a lot our of secret power. <laughs> we have a lot. I would put our Pilsners as a group up, maybe, maybe Oregon, uh, certainly Portland against any city. Uh, and, I noticed this happening. Uh, What's your favorite pills? Uh, I want to do a tasting, and maybe, maybe we should, in a future a pod, question. I would like to have uh, some Portland pillses and then do a blind tasting with the with the brewers who made them and uh, kind of just go through them because one of the cool things about it is it's not a singular palette, right? So they're very different. Your pilsner use, uses tetanangers, which I think are very distinctive, and so I and and a fairly assertive amount of bitterness. Uh, you mentioned Ben Edmonds. His Pilsner is is much more of a German, yeah. like South South German style, barely above a, a Hellas, very very mild hopping. Um, you know, uh, our friend Alan Taylor makes a, a North German style, very stiff, bitter, and kind of rough beer. You need to have a whole yeah. pint of that before you're like, you know, you shake it off, and then it's uh, that, that's uh, the the pills for the IPA lovers. That's almost. right. <laughs> yeah. So they're very different and they're very interesting. Um, but one thing that I noticed uh, when when that started happening, it seemed to be happening at the level of restaurants. Like these nice restaurants that had four taps would often have a local pilsner on because I think chefs didn't want an IPA, you know, which would just completely blot out their beer or their their food. And and yours, it Do you have any like thoughts about where that began. Maybe we can credit Rick Allen for that, right? Because I, I mean, Rick put his pills in every nice restaurant in town. I think that's I think that's a big thing. I think his, you know, he and he toiled for at least five years completely alone, and nobody was, you know, nobody was paying any attention to what, uh, you know, that 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 vein of brewing, and and then finally it started to go. And yours was actually an early one too, and uh, then they started to come along, slowly, 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 and now you can find a good pilsner at most restaurants, a locally brewed pilsner. So I, I think that's. It's an, it's a good question. I think it's an important point to make. Yeah. Um, sometimes a simple beer is what you want with complex food, and sometimes a complex beer is what you want with simple food. And you know, all well, that I mean, stuff. The, the you know, if you're labeling a, a beer, you know, simple or complex, I mean, I think that there's so many different ways of of looking at that. I mean, we were talking earlier about you know, people think that lager yeast is just supposed to be this sort of blank slate, right. and and it's not. I mean, every every different lager yeast will accentuate the malt in a different way the hops in a different way the finish the water profile the sulfur or lack thereof there'll be a slight ester profile i mean yeast strains affect every single aspect of the beer mm. every single aspect mm. even the color and so to think that lager yeast is just this like inconsequential you know like <laughs> element it's just it drives me nuts man because if that were true then we would all use the same strain and it wouldn't matter but all the pilsners taste different in town right yep. they really do yeah so you're gonna say your your pilsner is the best but aside from yours which one do you like you you asked me so i throw it right back at you yeah which oh, you didn't answer by the way <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 would, I would love to do. We, we did a blind tasting of Mexican lagers recently, and I always thought Pacifico was my favorite. Mm -hmm. And when we did a blind tasting, it was not my favorite. <laughs> uh, I learned that. Um, I, you know, I really, I really like Occidentals quite a bit, and uh, I would love to see how it, how it tastes blind. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know. I feel like to, I can't call out my favorite without doing this tasting that you're, you're mentioning. Yeah, I, I like no, the it's hard, there, it? There's some that I haven't had in a long time, and I know that brewers. Are always tweaking their beers too. Yeah, that's right. Um, I've had a lot of good luck with the the loggers at um, uh, Wayfinder. Yeah, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, right? Totally right. Yeah. Um, their check bills as well. 
Yeah, their their pilsners tend to be very tasty. Um, I've definitely enjoyed Occidental. Um, I mean, the, the, there's a ton of really good ones. I I really love the aroma of Allen's Pils at yeah. Zoigel House. I could smell that beer all day long, <laughs> but it it does have a, like a little bit of a roughness that, like I I'd want that one to like kind of dial it back a little bit and like smooth out. But God, that aroma is just too good to be true. That's that's a pilsner. When you're having four, that's the one to have, right? Or like yeah. for, for your fourth pilsner, <laughs> something <laughs> to like blast through at the end. Yeah, I without hesitation called that one my favorite because I'm a hophead. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, we I should love it. We're, we're gonna have to get together and and uh, and and talk pilsners with people who make them because I I love this. I think is a characteristic of Portland is. I've been to other cities where pilsners are popular, and there's kind of a singular palate. In Victoria, you find these German-style pilsners with Saz hops. It's funny. Victoria, B.C. Portlanders are not that way. If somebody makes a particular kind of pilsners, other people are not going to make that kind of pilsner. They're going to make their own kind of pilsner. And so you're starting to see all these variations. It's a brewer's beer. I I think brewers are making pilsner based probably more off of what they just want to drink and right. not thinking so much of the market because they know it's going to sell regardless. Right. So they can just make it their way. Yeah. I think that's right. And uh, brewers have distinctive tastes, which yeah. is great. And, and uh, you know, I think that comes back to Upright, which we should probably be wrapping this up. I think we're, yeah, going, I think a little, probably, yeah. we're going a little long. But, um, you know, you're one of those those few breweries that, that because you've decided to stay small, uh, it means that you can pursue pretty much any beer you want. Uh, and uh, for folks who have who come to Portland, we always have a lot of people doing beer tourism now. Um, they should put Upright on their list because it is uh, a unique brewery in Portland. It's unlike any other. The tap room. Tell us the hours the tap room are open so people can find you. We're open uh, Thursday and Friday, kind of after work time, four thirty to nine, mm-hmm. and then Saturday and Sunday, one to eight. But we are talking about expanding into Tuesday and Wednesday here later this summer. Ah. So the hours will those get a little like, bit of a tweak or an expansion probably in the next month or so. Those would be summer hours or per- permanently? Uh, probably permanently. Oh, that And would you're in the good. Left Bank building, and the address is? Uh, 240 North Broadway. It's right. the the biggest building that is impossible to find. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> it is hemmed in by big streets. If you're having a hard time, remember that it's 65,000 square feet, so you can see it. <laughs> it's there. Yeah, it is there. <laughs> and just go, when you get there, go down. Down and the find and the other the last plug is if you're not uh, if those hours don't work for you you can go to Grain and Gristle which uh, yep. Alex co-owns which is a bistro in town in North uh, East Portland and uh, most of the beers there are upright beers so you'll get a smaller selection because then you will at the brewery you won't be able to buy bottles but um, you can get a nice meal with the beer there as well oh yeah the food nice. that we're putting out there is fantastic it so is very representative of of Portland and the region I would recommend the twofer if you're going to be dining with someone else <laughs> uh, it's best deal in Portland. All right. Well, thank you, Alex. It was great to have you. Uh, it was wonderful to try your beer. And uh, folks out there, when you come to Portland, check out Upright Brewing. Oh, thanks. Total pleasure, guys. All right, thanks, All right. Alex. All right. And many thanks again to uh, Alec Ganum of Upright Brewing in Portland, Oregon, uh, for a great, not only a great interview, but uh, honestly, I have to say, four of the best beers I've had in a long time. Yeah. And and. Uh, Across quite a range of styles, but the, the, the cask IPA is just amazing. The thing about Upright, <clears throat> who's really claim to fame in the brewing world, it has to do with these barrel-aged beers that they make, the mixed fermentation beers. Right. Um, uh, the, the thing that I think people fail to really appreciate is 
how well he does these other simple styles that have these European derivations like Cascale and, and uh, simple lagers. And um, they're, they're just exceptional beers. And it's, I, think, I think you can't really appreciate Upright until you have the two side by side. Because, you know, in, in a way, uh, mixed fermentation beers can almost be like abstract art. It's mm-hmm. a little bit hard to know. Like, could this person just draw a sketch of a guy? Right. Well, if, if if the brewer is making simple beers like a simple pilsner and a simple uh, cask beer very very well out of simple ingredients, then you know that's the sketch, right? They yeah. they can do that. They're and, and so it helps the all of them inform each other. I yeah. Think. And the other thing I would say about Alex is that I I'm starting to develop this theory about brewers and sort of the art versus science, or not mm-hmm. even versus, but there's art and science of brewing, right? And you yeah. can approach brewing from either end. That's right. You can approach it from a very scientific perspective, knowing a lot about the chemistry of beer, or you can approach it from a very, what I would describe as an artistic perspective, where uh, you think a lot about the flavors, and then you start learning through experience about how those flavors come about and what to do to express those flavors. And so I always find it fascinating to talk to brewers because uh, uh, not always, but often you can uh, uh, sort of characterize them as coming coming from one side or the other, and usually you meet somewhere in the middle because you got to learn about the chemistry of your art. You got to learn about the art of your chem. That's right. Uh, and, and Alex and it seems very much like that art. He he references jazz and the name of the brewery, and also in sort of how he thinks about beer, and it's fascinating. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. He's it's. I, I was one thing I I learned that interview that I didn't know about Alex was that he uh, bailed out of school. Yeah, and that's interesting because he's one of the most uh, intellectually curious brewers I know. He's right. constantly learning new things and investigating new things, and not just in brewing, but in in, yeah. in other elements of the world, which come back and feed his yeah. uh, his knowledge. Well, that's one beer. of the problems with school, right? It's exactly those people who are very intellectually curious <laughs> get stifled by the structure of school. Yeah. So, so. Uh, and then one other this, this parenthetical I wanted to mention: uh, Rick Allen came up in. In the interview, we never really described Rick Allen, uh, but I wanted to give a shout out to Heater Allen Brewing. His brewery. His yeah, brewery. That he founded. From McMinnville, Oregon, which was for a long time uh, a sort of a lone voice of German style beers. Yeah. Uh, He's the lager king. Yeah, the lo- lagering. Basically, he was the only one lagering for a long time in craft brewing yeah. uh, and making fantastic lagers. And I think probably, I imagine, very early on in some of our pods, I might have mentioned that. But uh, I was always um, very, uh, a very big fan of his beers and wondering when lagering was going to catch on in craft brewing. And now it's just like everywhere. It's the big thing. And since you did that, I will throw out a uh, shout out to his daughter, Lisa, mm-hmm. who is more or less taken over the brewing duties there oh. and is one of the bright lights of the new generation of brewers. Excellent. So, yeah, it's fantastic to see. It's kind of it's actually kind of rare for family breweries to uh, continue in the brewing lineage within the family. Right. Uh, the ownership maybe, but but, right. but she's the brewer, so that's very cool. That's great. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, we have a mailbag before we do that. We have a Sherpa. Oh, yes, we do have a Sherpa, and I'm going to do one more of my beers from New York, and it's very appropriate uh, following what we we uh, did with Alex. Okay. Um, there's a brewery in New York called Grimm, and they have a beer called Spooky Action. Grimm. Grimm, with two M's. <laughs> uh, and uh, Spooky Action, I believe, refers to, uh, it's a physics term, yeah, like the spooky action Got me. Uh, from a distance. I okay. believe that's what it's referring to. Uh, it is a Flanders-style wild ale, mm. uh, mixed fermentation, um, brown, red-brown ale. Right. And I had this at uh, one of the kind of old school – in Manhattan, you have the, all these old school pubs. Right. And I learned when I was in Manhattan that um, 
they are a huge number of them are manned by Irish immigrants, young immigrant men from Ireland. And there's this whole cabal. Still, right now. Oh, absolutely. Still yeah. now. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Carl, this guy at, I had it at the Swift Hibernian Lounge. Okay. Um, and uh, it was recommended to me by our friend of the pod, John Urch, mm -hmm. uh, who's a Guinness guy, and they pour a good pint of Guinness there, but um, they have a, a, a blend of uh, all kinds of different beers there. Right. But um, so Carl was telling me, yeah, you know, a lot of us come from Ireland and uh, we work here. So we work at, I showed him a picture of the last time I was in New York. I went to McSorley's Old Ale House and I had a picture of the bartender. He said, I said oh, that's Shane. <laughs> 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 they, they all know each other and they kind of, they work in the, in the ale houses of New York City, which is fantastic. Anyway, um, I had the spooky action there and I had it with Shepherd's Pie. <laughs> Brilliant. And this is... One of those things we just talked with Alex about how food and, and beer can go together well. Well, uh, it's one of those things where a very simple food right. uh, and a very complex beer really work well together. Right. Uh, kind of the opposite of the simple uh, Pilsner style with complex food. And in this case, the, 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 the sweetness of the beer, which had a spine of acidity, but the sweetness harmonized with the sweetness from the meat. Right. And it was just, oh, it was amazing. So I was very impressed with uh, spooky action from Grim Brewing, and I also I, I won't mention any more New York beers, but I also want to say there was a little tiny brewery in Brooklyn called Svendale, which I had maybe my best experience in New York at, and also my best hoppy ale experience. I had a lot of different hoppy ales there, and they had an oat pale, which may have been called Twenty Two North, <laughs> but I <May> not have. <laughs> I failed to take great notes, uh, okay. and that's the one that I could find online afterwards. That usually you can find out information about a brewery afterwards and i i save myself no one knows that uh when i when i mess up because there's the internet right but svendel doesn't have great uh internet presence so i was a little bit screwed on that one anyway wonderful pale Svendale ale oat pale. yeah wonderful pale ale extremely it was a it was a hazy but it was um uh didn't have that uh, chlorophyll note that i have with over uh, really intensely uh, uh dry hopped beer very juicy perfect pale ale so it's really sessionable i could have drunk that all night and right. it was a it was this tiny postage stamp of a place and every it felt like i was walking into somebody's living room there was no way to have privacy in this place so we all just started talking it was uh -huh. a great pub experience and i i love that beer so anyway uh spooky action and spendale oat pale those okay. are those are ones to look for if you're in the city of uh new york all right big apple next time i go yep okay so now let's turn to the mailbag uh in the mailbag we have uh you've picked out two I have two. Uh, the first one is from uh, Paul Norconk, uh, and this one is sort of for producer Will, but uh, actually- Are you listening, Will? Actually, actually, it might a little bit because of me. I'll, I'm about, I'll explain, but yeah. uh, he writes, I've been listening to the podcast for some time now and appreciate that episodes are starting to happen on a regular basis. Yeah. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, we're, we're happy about that, too. <laughs> yeah, we are. For some reason, I have to turn up the volume nearly to its limit to hear the both of you. Generally, your voice, Jeff, comes through fairly well, but Patrick's is at a lower volume. I listen to many beer podcasts, and yours is the only one with this issue. When I arrive at work and turn off my engine, the radio comes on super loud. Uh, I'll mention that it's, it's, there was one specific podcast where I felt like I was too loud and asked Will to turn me down, uh, and uh, that was a mistake. I listened to that, too, and had the same experience, uh, But that was so I can t I'll take that one. That was my fault. Yeah, and I would also like to note that a lot of people have written in and uh, said, oh, my God, your audio is so much better. So <laughs> yes. Will, uh, Will can take this for what it's worth. Yeah, uh, So, but thank you very much. We're still working on it. I'm, now, that, now that we have good audio, I can actually think about what I'm doing uh, especially in terms of speaking and speaking to the microphone. And I still have this issue I've noticed of trailing off and I'm trying to correct that. So yeah. uh, thank you for listening. It's very professorial. 
makes total sense to me. Okay, the second one comes from Kevin McAvoy, and he gets pedantic <laughs> in a way that I love and appreciate. Okay, good. And uh, so I'm going to read you this whole thing because when you go pedantic, you got to go long-winded. So here we go. Kevin writes, I've noticed that many times you and Patrick correcting yourselves on your pronunciation of Hefeweizen, being sure to pronounce the first A as A, so uh, the, first e, yeah. the armchair linguist in me says that while this is correct, our English-speaking tendency to make unstressed vowels into schwas, the sort of dull uh sound, forces you to say something like hefeweizen, hefeweizen, I'm sorry. I'm fairly certain that the schwa sound doesn't exist in German and that the latter e is always pronounced as you would, uh, as you make a point to in the first syllable. So really it should be something like hefeweizen. So you and he, I, Hefeweizen. yeah, Hefeweizen. Hefeweizen. Okay. So we'll have to throw this to our German uh, readers. What say you? Uh, Kevin continues. Also, in your new episode on Mexican loggers, thank you. He says, "You're welcome." You cite chicha along with the pulque as pre-Columbian booze from Mexico. Now, I'm no archaeologist. <laughs> oh, you, you can tell that a, a big correction is coming when yeah. he apolog- when he when he uh, gets uh, uh, self-effacing. Just a beer-loving Spanish teacher with a wife from Mexico, Puebla. Puebla, my Cinco best, de Mayo one of my territory. best friends from Puebla. Yeah, that's, that's, where this, Puebla. that's where the Cinco de Mayo thing happened. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure Chicha is just found south of Mexico. Hope you don't mind a little pedantry in the mailbag. Cheers. And as you know, Kevin, we love pedantry. There, you are our Absolutely. favorite people. Uh, we have a professor on hand. <laughs> Pendants Pendants are our peeps. They are our peeps. So, um, <laughs> yeah, keep keep sending us incredibly detailed corrections about minor issues. Those are our favorite things. So Chicha is a southern, south, south of Mexico. I guess it's south of Mexico. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's a Central American thing. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, I love Puebla, by the way. Puebla is... My favorite place in Mexico. How, however, I've only visited two places. Okay. Yeah, so Mexico City <laughs> and Puebla. Puebla is superior. All right. <laughs> now you know it. Patrick gives you the, the deets. Yeah, you can go uh, uh, trek through the, the bowels of the of the pyramids in is, Puebla. Is Mexico City the other place you've been? I know you've been there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, All right. Yeah, which is also really yeah, fun. I was going to say. Really fun. But clear, clearly a diss on Mexico City. No, no, I like Mexico City. <laughs> if you don't mind sitting, backpedaling also, you don't mind sitting in a car for three hours to get two miles. Yeah. Mexico City is your place. That's a South Paulinian. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sao Paulo is the same. You way. know exactly what that's like. All right, a few words about going out. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, do all those things that help people find our show and uh, spread the word. Five stars, please. Yes, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us your questions or comments. The best place to send it is email Jeff at Jeff at beervanablog.com. You can visit us on social media. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog. He tweets at at Beervana. Uh, and that's, Patrick. That's your cue. Yeah, sorry. And Patrick tweets at Beeronomics. That's right. And Jeff, of course, keeps maintains the Beervana blog Facebook page, which is a good way to join the conversation. That's so. right. And we get uh, we, we, we scrape comments off of there for the mailbag. So be, be forewarned. Yeah, and so, also be invited. So all four of Alex's beers were pretty phenomenal. And I say that... Uh, uh, in all seriousness, um, he brews just an amazing beers. Uh, the most phenomenal for me, of course, was the IPA, which he himself drank all of. Yeah. So I can't drink anymore. So I have to pick up this uh, uh, other. Wait, what did you hand me? What color is that? Oh, this is the one with cherries. Nice. <laughs> nice. I'm having the anniversary ale, which I just want to throw out a, a shout out. This is an extraordinary ale. It's, it was my favorite. I, I really like the super cool on cask, but this thing is insane. It yeah, has so much. A, 
so much depth. And also, I mean, I, I, I would challenge anybody uh, who likes any kind of alcohol to dislike this. This beer is, I think, a, yeah. s- would be super pleasant for basically everybody. If, you, if you're if you a Mormon, probably not you. But uh, <laughs> but other than that, let's let's dial this up for everyone. You're going to love uh, it. The scars of your Salt Lake City yes. are bringing this up. Okay. Well, uh, they're, 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 not, they're not into the beer in Salt Lake. And, uh, well, at least the, uh, uh, those are the uh, Latter-day Saints. Yeah, anyway, yeah. All right. But particularly if you're a Saison lover, this is that's a phenomenal. It's, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's the... All right, so thanks again to Alex, and uh, cheers, Jeff. All right, cheers, Patrick.